Hey, everybody. Are you with me when I say life can be amazing at times, but it can also be extremely challenging? I know. I've been there myself. Learned some valuable life lessons along the way, and now I'm here to help you. It's no coincidence you've found your way to the Relevate podcast. I'm your host, Rena Olson, a self-proclaimed inspirer of others. Together, we're going to dive deep into raw and honest conversations with real people. My hope is that through these stories, you too will be inspired and ready to tackle whatever's holding you back or breaking your heart. Then you'll be free to live a life of purpose and true fulfillment. I promise it's possible. Let's Relevate. Hey friends, Happy New Year. Welcome to the Relevate Podcast. I'm your host, Rena Olson, here with another episode to inform and inspire you. My guest today is Dr. Janine Janot, a brilliant school psychologist and student coach and author of the book, The Disintegrating Student, Super Smart and Falling Apart. In a performance-driven culture like we live in in the U.S., it's no great surprise that many of our students are cracking under the pressure. Dr. Janot is here today to walk us through what you can do to identify potential problems with your student and ensure they develop the skills they need for success, not only in school, but also for life. Dr. Janine Janot, welcome to the Relevate Podcast. Thank you for having me. Well, I am so glad you're here. Super fun that we both live in the Milton area. I love living here. I know. And great that we can do this conversation face-to-face and not over the phone. Where did you grow up and was your plan always to work with families and struggling kids? I grew up in Ohio, um, very Midwestern upbringing. And no, I never saw myself as I remember being a you know young kid, teenager, young adult, and I'm not even going to get married. I'm not going to have kids. And it turned out, yeah, that's exactly what I did. So it wasn't until worked on my psychology degrees and found out that um, it was really developmental psychology I was so fascinated with. Mm-hmm. And that's what got me working with children in all kinds of settings and families. Wow. So what what exactly does that mean, developmental psychology? So I started, I got my undergraduate degree in psychology. I got a master's in school psychology and worked a little bit in the schools as a school psychologist, but didn't feel like I was being able to do exactly what I wanted to do. I was doing a lot of testing, but not a lot of proactive, mm-hmm. you know, work with families and kids. So I got a degree, my doctorate degree is in child and developmental psychology. And what that means is basically looking at the lifespan, um, you know, how we change over time and what's developmentally appropriate, mm-hmm. specifically when it comes to education. So with my education background, I was really interested in, well, how are, you know, how's curriculum developed so it's appropriate and meets the needs of, you know, a kindergartner versus a third mm-hmm. grader versus a 10th grader. And all that work and just all my experience in private schools, public schools, raising my own three kids just brought me to the point where I felt like I could write the the book that I just wrote last July. And congratulations on that. Thank Tell you. us the title. So it's called The Disintegrating Student, Super Smart and Falling Apart. That's an amazing title. Well, we will definitely get into that um, because it's a very, very timely discussion. So do you work with both with the kids and, and the parents in your yeah, practice? I do. So typically most of my work is what I call student coaching. So I'm working one-on-one with students. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the 
you can't work with a student without working with a oh, parent absolutely. because everything functions together and mm-hmm. a family is like a puzzle. So you don't tweak one piece and leave the rest of the puzzle <laughs> the same. Right. So um, I, I, I work with the parents to kind of really figure out what their concerns are and then we'll work with the child individually and coach them in the areas that they need the most help. Mm-hmm. So when people find their way or make their way to you, are they usually in crisis or do they see it coming or? It's a mix. So a lot of times, it, initially it was crisis management. Mm-hmm. So it was the it was the kids who were really starting to fall apart in mm-hmm. school. And what I've noticed though is as more people are aware that of what the issues and what the underlying issues are that are causing our kids to fall apart, mm-hmm. that um, parents are being more proactive now you know, trying to recognize those signs of struggle mm-hmm. and you know, getting them the help they need earlier, Yeah, which I love that. That's yeah, <laughs> definitely. And I, I don't know if it's, we just have so much more access to various forms of media. I mean, it really seems like there's so much crisis with our young people today. Is, is that real? Do you think? We are in a mental health crisis. Um, There was a study released. um, It's actually based on two studies. These came out in September, just this past September, that um, listed, they were looking at at at-risk students for um, being at higher risk for mental health issues, behavioral issues. Mm -hmm. And students from high-achieving schools are now on the list, along with kids coming from you know, um, poverty, mm-hmm. having incarcerated parents, uh, living in foster homes, and recently immigrating. Wow. I mean, that's staggering. That is staggering. So our, our high-achieving kids, or at least the kids in high-achieving schools, are now at risk. Mm-hmm. Three to four times um, the risk of the normal population. Yeah. Having mental health issues. Anxiety, depression. Exactly. Suicide. Oh my gosh, that is unbelievable. So how how did we get here? You know, it's it's been over a long period of time because I think we're behind in recognizing how serious the mental health crisis is. Exactly. By many, many years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for, for those of us who've been paying attention, it's like, well, duh. <laughs> we exactly. knew this was happening. Um, but I think for the general population, it's just now become sort of like, oh, this is a real significant problem. Right. The suicide uh, statistics just came out recently. And again, they were just horrifying. Right. Um, and we got here through a lot of different pressures. Ultimately, what we did, starting in the probably mid-1980s, is we started to do things that put us on a path to an achievement culture that we currently live in today. Right. So it was uh, shifts in parenting mm-hmm. um, that started to occur then. Um, you know, there were more latchkey kids. Moms were going back to work. Playdates started to become a thing. Kids weren't playing outside the way they used to. Video games started to kind of mm-hmm. start to creep into a lot of our kids' you know, yeah. recreation. And then one of the biggest things that happened was the No Child Left Behind legislation, mm-hmm. which really fueled what is what today I would call an achievement culture, where we're really very data-driven right? instead of values-driven. Oh, so we care about scores and numbers, yes. and GPAs, and all you know, class rank mm-hmm. instead of you know, curiosity and resilience and creativity. 
we don't, we're not valuing learning anymore. And when it's the culture Mm -hmm. that's driving that, that's what then seeps down into our educators, into our parenting, into what the students, they're feeling the pressure from absolutely all sides. And I think that's how we got here. Uh, And um, I know I have two kids. I believe my husband and I raised really well-rounded kids. Of it just seemed like so much emphasis was put on, you know, those the ones that had all the AP classes and that were, you know, super achievers and and, and they're not their school. And a lot of times parents don't understand that. Uh, they might say they understand it, but deep down, that's just really sometimes hard to accept that you know if they're not getting into the school that you want them to get into, that that's disappointing or embarrassing in some way, and our kids are feeling the same way. Yeah. So ultimately, I don't think that should be a parent's... I think parents are way too invested in that decision. Mm-hmm. Don't, you, don't agree. you agree? 100%. I, I personally, my, my, my older kids, I have one who's graduated college and one who's very close. Um, nice to have one that's still in high school right now. But the two older kids, you know, they did it themselves. They filled out the applications. They wrote their essays. I don't mm-hmm. even know what they wrote on their essays. I didn't check them. I didn't, Good you job. know, because they were going to college and they needed to do the things they needed to do. And I was and not going with them. Exactly. Nor did I want to know all the things that they were doing and checking up on them. Right. So I figured if they couldn't handle that, even though it's a very high stakes endeavor, I, mm-hmm. I completely understand um, how how much is at stake when these kids are filling out these applications. You know, if we can't get them to the point where they can own that, it's 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 just going to extend the anxiety. Mm-hmm. And the but when you say how much is at stake, it really, I mean, do you really believe that? So personally in my family, no, okay. I don't um, because I feel like my kids are fine wherever they go. But it is, I can tell you, I have a hard time finding a lot of parents who don't believe that, mm-hmm. that they really, as much as they understand that the kids are under too much stress and this shouldn't matter, it does. It does. And that's kind of the part. And again, that's part of being in the culture. The culture. It's just baked in the, the cake. So we, culture. you know, we behave in a way that's consistent with our attitudes and beliefs. And our attitudes and beliefs oftentimes are shaped by the current culture that we're in. Mm-hmm. So we're almost going against the tide by saying, yeah, we're fine with this school or that school or whatever. Um, that's not the norm right now. Right. And I, I have no problem being countercultural at all, because I think college is such a, a blip on the radar, unless you were going for a very specific expertise. Mm-hmm. Like if you know you want to be an audiologist and Auburn has the best school, then, you know, that's different. Mm-hmm. But I think the majority of kids, they just, they don't really know what they want to do. Exactly. And that, that, that takes time. It does, and it and it's a it's a lifelong process. And college should be about that discovery process, exactly. And it's it. Unfortunately, we by the time our kids are graduating high school, by and large, so many of them hate learning, hate school, mm-hmm. and they're literally checking boxes to do what they need to do to get to the career that they want. So college is not even. 
it doesn't even have the same I don't think it has the same appeal that it had like when when I went to college. Mm-hmm. Sure. I think again it's just another I got to check these boxes off and survive it. Right. Let's talk a little bit more about the achievement culture. Okay. And as a parent, what do you need to be aware of? So the the research I mentioned earlier that came out that said that kids from high achieving schools were at increased risk for mental health issues. There's some other studies that have uh, are a little earlier than this, but looked specifically at what protects kids in high achieving school cultures. And it turned out, I hate to say this, but moms actually played a role. Mm. So it was um, mothers who valued character over achievement. So I'm not sure exactly why it's it was the moms in particular, but that's what the study found was that if a child has a sense that who they are and what they're about and their character and what they value matters more than the achievement, that that's very protective, wow. which I think is very powerful yeah. because that almost gives parents permission to follow their heart and their gut, mm-hmm. which I think tells them, we shouldn't be worried about which school they get into. We shouldn't be worried that their GPA is, you know, at this level or that level, mm-hmm. what their class rank is. And um, again, that's what the achievement culture is suggesting to us. And the problem that parents run into is that even if we take the stance that it doesn't matter what the next step is, I'm there to support you and you're you're going to do well and you're going to find your way and mistakes are going to happen and we're all okay with that. Even if we do that and say yeah. that and live it and breathe it. can fall flat too. Oh, the kids are in, you know, they're getting, like I said, it comes to them from all sides. Mm-hmm. So it's it, it's really important they have that piece from the parents, but they are getting a whole different story from their peers, especially if they're high achieving kids and their peers are other high achieving kids. Um, they're getting it from the educators that they see on a daily basis. And so a lot of times our kids won't buy into it, even if we're suggesting that they do. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think you have to start early too. Really early. Yeah. How, how early would you suggest? So I think because part of the reason that this has become an issue with our older kids, so middle school and high school, mm-hmm. is because they get what I call fixed mindset. So a lot of their self-esteem, especially our bright kids, is wrapped up in being smart. And this is something they've heard since they were real little, yeah. over and over and over. You're so smart. You did that so quickly. That was amazing. Mm-hmm. And how we as parents can help is to kind of, when they're young, be more careful about how we praise them. Because we're praising on things that they don't have control over. We're praising mm-hmm. the talent. We're, we're praising the gifts. And it's easy, right. you know, and it sounds good in the moment. So yeah. nice to tell somebody, you're so smart, that you're so pretty, you're so athletic. So what happens when they get the bad grade or something happens, are all of a sudden, are they not smart? And right. again, if they've identi- identified that way, if they've internalized it, mm-hmm. that causes a whole thing to start happening with their self-esteem mm-hmm. um, when they're in middle school and high school. Yeah. So how would you suggest we reward that? So it's about praising what they have control over, and that's effort. Right. So how they approach the task, the amount of time or effort they put into it, their creativity, mm-hmm. things they have control over, then that just encourages that kind of behavior. Now, the problem with that is it's really hard to do. Right. It's hard because it's more, you have to be more mindful. It's just not the easy, you're smart, 
athletic, you're pretty, to be more careful about your words. Right. And I think so much is expected of parents these days, Mm -hmm. like to be plugged in to what the grades are. You know, it's when I grew up, I mean, my mother did nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> She'd take me to get, you know, some new clothes at the beginning of the year and some school supplies. But and your grade card would come and be like, oh, okay. Exactly. Yeah, that was sort of the check-in, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. But now it's it's hour by hour. Parents are checking the portals. And, and that's they, expected of them, right? right? That's what the schools... But ex- it's a real mixed message when you mm-hmm. think about it because we're saying, you know, you need to let your kids handle these things and be advocates for themselves. But at the same time, oh my gosh, didn't you, weren't you keeping up with the portal? Didn't you know? Why haven't you, you know, so it's a mixed bag. Um, but I don't check the portal. Yeah. I figure if something really bad's happening, somebody's going to tell me, but that's not my responsibility. Those aren't my grades. And, you know, what can I do about it? All I can do is nag my kid, which isn't going to get either of us anywhere. Exactly. It's going to drive me crazy. So, okay. Talk to me. What is a rigor tipping point? So a rigor tipping point is what I call the point at which um, a child gets to the stage of rigor, whatever that looks like for them, where their ability no longer kind of matches the difficulty of the work. So in, in other words, a lot of kids, especially really high achieving kids, they kind of breeze through elementary school. So there are the kids who they don't study, they really don't do homework at home, they, they manage to get it done in class or on the bus, and school's just so easy for them. They just remember stuff they hear, they go take the test, they get their A's. At some point, that child may hit a rigor tipping point, so it may be 6th grade, it may be 8th grade. 10th grade, 8th and 10th grade are really common tipping points, although I've noticed ninth grade has now become one because the high school uh, curriculum has gone into the eighth grade. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of eighth graders taking ninth grade classes. So now I'm seeing ninth grade as being this tipping point. And it's it's basically that a student who hasn't had to study and had to really work and put effort into school hits this point where they're they can't just wing it anymore. Right. So they have to learn to study. And so some kids will, they'll modify and they'll make those adjustments and, you know, they just kind of continue on and they're still high achieving students. Mm -hmm. But for other kids, especially those kids who have more of that fixed mindset where their identity is tied up into being really smart Mm -hmm. and they tend to have kind of a fear of failure, these are the kids that start to fall apart Mm -hmm. because they don't know how to study Studying means trying and putting in effort and time. And they look at that as, well, that's what the kids who aren't smart have always done. Mm. And I'm not going to do that. So it's embarrassing to them. Um, And it's just a really devastating time in a family Mm. because communication tends to break down. Right. And you're, you're dealing with teenagers too, yeah, which right. that's already another thing. <laughs> exactly. And misunderstandings and miscommunication come out of this because if, if you're not communicating effectively, then you basically are making making up your own story in your head as to what's going on. Right. And the parents think... Which um, as a parent, you have to you have to kind of fill in the blanks. Right. Because usually you'll say something. Um, so a parent at, at this time when, a, when their child hits a rigor tipping point, they say, what's going on? Why are you getting C's? What's happening? Do you need a tutor? Blah, blah, blah. And the kid says, I don't know. Exactly. Or and, nothing. And they're not lying. 
because they literally don't know right. what's happening and they're freaking out. Mm-hmm. But the, the story in the parents head is that they don't care anymore. You know, mm-hmm. my student who used to, you know, care about school and like school, they don't care. They're not motivated <sighs> and they're doing this on purpose because I've offered tutoring. I've suggested this, I've done this and they're turning me down and they're not doing anything differently. So this must be in their control. And then you'd look at the student and what's going on in their little brains. Their story is quite different. Right. They think, well, my parents clearly care more about my grades than they do me. Mm-hmm. My parents are disappointed in me, which wow. even though they don't act like it, that's very devastating yes. to our kids. They also think it's only happening to them, mm-hmm. which it's not, but they all kind of hide it from each other. They're in the peer group. So mm-hmm. they think that and um, they think they don't have any control over it. They don't know what to do. Mm. But such good awareness about issues such as this that are are happening, you know, it's not just happening in our community. I'm sure this is a nationwide thing. I think so. I think so. Wow. So interesting. In your book, you talk about how the blame goes outward. What do you mean by that? So kids who are in a mindset where they're feeling threatened, Mm -hmm. particularly around how smart they are, they're very careful to they'll self-handicap and self-sabotage sometimes to try to keep anybody from knowing that they're struggling and that they're not smart anymore because again this is the deep-seated fear that I'm not smart now and what they're trying to do is basically shield themselves from anything that's going to out them and expose this weakness so they have this fear of failure so anything that's challenging to them and when you're hitting these rigor tipping points when you're in you know some of the ninth, 10th, 11th grade classes, you're taking AP and honors, it's going to be hard. And so what they're doing is they're trying to protect themselves from those challenging situations. And there's research that actually shows that the the opposite of having this kind of mindset, which is a fixed mindset, is having a growth mindset, Mm -hmm. which means you're kind of open to making mistakes. You learn from the feedback. You welcome the challenges and we, we actually can see what's going on in the brains of students who mm-hmm. have more of a fixed or a growth mindset. And what they do is they put these kids in, in a situation where they have to solve a very challenging puzzle right. that they've never seen before. And at the end of it, so they're looking at their brains, what's happening while they're solving the puzzle. And at the end, they get the feedback. And what happens with a child's brain who's in a more of a fixed mindset stage is it just goes dark. They're not even listening. And a growth mindset brain is just lighting up all over the place. So, you know, this is all about kind of Mm -hmm. self-protection. That is so interesting. So is that something that you can learn or is that kind of your God-given hardwiring? No, that's the awesome thing about it. It is just a tweak in thinking. Mm -hmm. Actually changing mindsets really in the short term, it's very, very simple. Mm -hmm. It's just giving somebody the information. So we have mindsets about all kinds of things. We have like an aging mindset. So if you think about somebody who's, you know, like 89 years old and you picture that person in your head, we have default ways of, you know, assumptions, beliefs about a person who's 89. Mm -hmm. That's an aging mindset. You can have a positive one. You can have a more negative one. And people just interestingly, I think, People who have a positive mindset about aging live on average eight years longer. Oh, wow. Like really healthy, good quality of life. How amazing so is that? So mindsets are incredibly powerful. Right. So when we talk about it, like this academic mindset being fixed or growth, 
you know, what I have to help students understand is that basically challenges and mistakes are what you want to happen. Mm -hmm. And that's a hard pill to swallow for a lot of our students. And how I bypass it with them is usually they have a growth mindset when it comes to their extracurriculars. Hmm. So if they're a lacrosse player or a swimmer or they're in drama or debate or band or something like that, where they are being coached, they are making mistakes, they are practicing, they're putting Mm -hmm. in effort Mm -hmm. where they can see that and how that outcome is so positive and how they make gains, then I have to say, okay, now we need to take how you're thinking about this and how you're approaching this outside thing Mm -hmm. that's not school and bring it into academics. And the light bulb kind of goes on for them. It's like, oh, they don't want to do it, but the light bulb goes on. Um, Because, again, it's very threatening, Mm -hmm. um, and they feel very vulnerable. But what the piece that's lacking for them is skills. And so my big pitch to them is you're you're not dumb. You're as smart as you ever were, and if anything, you're getting smarter. I mean, the adolescent brain has the capacity to grow or lose 18 IQ points. It is so spongy and malleable. So for Interesting. for good or bad, the brain is um, it's one of the most incredible times after you know that time when they're starting to learn to walk and talk, where the brain is just absorbing so much. So I say to them, you just have never needed skills. Mm-hmm. You've been that smart. But now you need to add some skills in, which means time management and organization and really good, effective study skills and study habits, um, because they don't even have study habits. A lot of them don't even have a study environment. It's Mm -hmm. like, I don't study at home. It's like, well, let's think about how how we can make Mm -hmm. that happen. And sleeve screens and stress are all things that they need a little bit of help managing. Say that again. Sleep screens and stress. Okay. <laughs> the three S's. Because <laughs> those are all things that are impact. They, it's all tied together. Yeah. So as their anxiety gets worse, their screen use goes up. Imagine that. Mm-hmm. So that's their coping mechanism. And of course, that becomes a point of contention in the mm-hmm. family. And a lot of times the way we parents address that is we take their phone away and nothing changes. Mm-hmm. Um, because again, they're using it as a coping mechanism. And it's an addictive coping mechanism. Sure. So it's very problematic. Sleep screens and stress. Screens and stress. Wow. That kind of applies for everybody. For everybody, it does. (laughs) Let's talk a little bit about ADHD. It seems like a lot of your work is focused on high-achieving kids versus the broader spectrum. Do you see a lot of ADHD in your practice? I do. Again, a lot of uh, gifted children Mm -hmm. have ADHD. A lot of the kids I see, whether they're high achieving or not, when they, when the anxiety starts to increase for them, Mm -hmm. they think they're ADHD or they look ADHD. So I'm seeing this a lot with females. So some of the girls who come to see me who are in the 14 to 17 year old range, who've not, never had any kind of diagnosis of ADHD Mm -hmm. will say, I think I have ADHD. Well, that's not possible because, I mean, for according to the Diagnostics and Statistical Manual, the DSM-5, you know, we need to be identifying that by age 13. Mm -hmm. Um, So the fact that all of a sudden at age 16, that's unlikely, unless, you know, with girls, sometimes they have the inattentive type and it's not really addressed. So that's possible. Mm -hmm. So it's possible that with the anxiety added in, what was ADHD that they were compensating for because they were very intelligent just didn't really get noticed earlier. So that's a possibility. But for a lot of the kids, 
the anxiety is mimicking the symptoms of ADHD. Talk to me a little bit more about that. So one of the things that anxiety is doing is it's hijacking your thinking brain. So when your thinking brain is hijacked, Mm -hmm. you um, can't focus, concentrate. It's harder to kind of Mm self-regulate. It's harder to think. And that's happening with our kids with test anxiety, but it's happening to them even on a broader spectrum, Mm -hmm. I think, so that, you know, even when they're not, they don't, they're not really anxious about a certain thing. Their anxiety level has just, the baseline has become so high Mm -hmm. that they're having difficulty staying focused. Right. So how do you coach somebody through that in dealing with anxiety? So I'm always about getting to the root causes of Mm -hmm. things. So I can throw skills at people all day long. Like here, this is what you need to do. And unless they understand, first of all, why a way I suggest doing something would be helpful. So I'm big on, you know, here's what your brain's doing. I think teenagers um, are well served to understand what's going on in their adolescent brain because it's fascinating um, and it explains a lot. Right. So I like to give them that knowledge base, first of all. And then I like to talk to them about, you know, what's driving, you know, whatever issues they're having. So a lot of kids will come saying, well, I'm just a big procrastinator. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, I'm sure you are, <laughs> but why? And they're like, well, that's just, uh, that's just who I am. That's my personality. It's like, no, I don't think so. There's, there's more to that story. So to kind of get down and talk to them about, well, what, you know, there's, there's certain procrastination triggers, you know, if something's challenging, if there's something you don't like, um, if it's frustrating, if it's ambiguous, there's all these triggers that can make us want to procrastinate. Mm -hmm. And schoolwork tends to have many of those triggers. Guilty. So they need to kind of understand that it's a lot about self-reflection which teens by and large are not awesome at yeah that's not really their thing so I like to get them really to start attending to their feelings instead of just going to their phone yes just sit with this Mm -hmm. discomfort and really ask yourselves be vulnerable and ask yourself questions about why you're avoiding this and and kind of learning that way because I think in that way then they can start to connect to their future self which again is not something adolescents are really even us adults, as we're not great at this, but mm-hmm. I like to have them think about themselves at, you know, 11 o'clock tonight. That's future you. What do you want to be doing? Do you want to be stressing out because you've got two more hours of homework? Mm-hmm. What about, you know, you at the end of this week or you at the end of finals at the end of the semester? Are you, when you're ready to graduate for high school, what do you envision? What do you want? What are your goals? What do you value? And those are the things they need to start thinking about because that's going to be what gets that internal motivation lit up in them again to want to learn. It has to be for them. It can't Mm -hmm. be because everybody's just telling me I have to. That's miserable. And that's what a lot of them are doing. Yeah. Stoking that internal motivation. That is is the key. How do you do that? And I think as a parent, it's just so hard because at some point they just, they become tone deaf Mm -hmm. to you, to the parent. And it's not in our control. And that is the hardest thing as you go through parenting. I found the older they get, the less control we have. And we're, right. we've been so used to being large and in charge with our Heck kids. Yeah. And sometimes we don't make that adjustment mm-hmm. and we just keep trying to power through right. adolescence in the same way we did, you know, when they were right. younger. And it backfires. Right. So as a parent, we really need to be adjusting our parenting as the child gets older. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't you say? I do agree. And it, it's sort of a paradox because another piece of 
uh, parenting adolescents is there's a part of us that treats them like they're full-grown adults. And we have these expectations that they will handle things like a full-grown adult. Mm -hmm. And the problem is they may look it on the outside. Right. Their brain is not there yet. Right. That frontal lobe, that part, our thinking brain, the part that you know helps us concentrate and self-regulate and controls our impulses and our concentration, that part's not fully matured until after they graduate college. Yeah. So it's in the late 20s. So, you know, when they act like little kids or do something that's not very smart, mm -hmm. there's a reason for that. Right. And I think different kids have a different maturation level Absolutely. of that. Mm -hmm that frontal lobe. Oh, yeah. And our girls are a couple years ahead of our boys. Mm -hmm. And if you have a child with ADHD, that, uh, that area of the brain is immature a little bit longer, but that's why, you know, kids tend to outgrow ADHD or it tends to get better because as their brain matures, it starts to take on some of those deficits and, and handles it better. Yeah. So we hear so much about social media and how it's negative for our young people. What would you say about that? Well, I have so many students that will argue with me and say, if they didn't have that, they don't know what they would do, that there's so much positive they get out of it. But it, it what what the research tells us is it depends on how they're using it and what's going on with our kids when they're using it. So it is very dangerous when we have a child who feels lonely and they're not connected and they're they're involved, deeply involved in social media. And even if they're not posting, but they're reading other people's posts and they're internalizing this. So that just leads to more depression. Mm -hmm. um, so that's not at all helpful and somewhat dangerous. But a lot of our kids are using it for more positive um, means. So in group chats, to share uplifting things. Mm -hmm. um, so it really depends on how a child is using it. And there's the argument that it's, you know, it's not the social media itself, it's how it's being used. And, and I think that has some merit to it, but we do have to address the hours spent on it, good or bad. Right. Um, and, and our kids are reporting on average five to seven hours a day. And a lot oh of, you'll gosh. hear nine pretty common from a, a high schooler. A day. A day. That's a full-time job. Wow. And they're on their phones during class, too. They're on their phones during class I while they're doing homework. I just don't get that. Mm -hmm. You cannot pay attention if you're on your phone. They're not. They're not paying attention. And the poor teachers having to deal with that. And they're not paying attention to their homework, either. So they, they're saying they're multitasking, but they're mm -hmm. not. They're shifting quickly back and forth, and their homework's taking them way longer than it needs to. Exactly. So what can parents do to, I don't know if it's monitor it, or how can, how do, how can parents coach their kids through appropriate use of social media? So we, the recommendation now is wait till eighth, which is don't even give your kid a smartphone until eighth grade at the earliest. Oh, nice. Um, and that's a, that's part of looking at brain development mm -hmm. and what they can mm -hmm. handle. Cause when you think of some of the content that 10 year olds are being exposed yes. to, that's changing their brains exactly. and not in a good way. Right. It's scary. Mm -hmm. um, so waiting till eighth. And the more parents who do that, the more that becomes the culture. Right. That becomes what we do in the norm. So that that's helpful. Really having 
and again, this is hard to so if a parent's listening and they have a you know, 16, 17 year old and they've had a phone for five years, all the stuff I'm going to say right now is like, yeah, that's just not going to work because we're in it. <laughs> sure. But ideally, if you wait till eight, then as they get their phones, there are there are house rules. So you can designate zones, you know, screen free zones or screen time zones. So like we can all use our screens between these hours and these hours. We cannot be on our screens at the dinner table. All screens get put in a charging station outside of your bedrooms at such and such a time. And establishing that as the norm in our house, this Mm -hmm. is what we do, is really beneficial because they don't have the brains that can that can fight back against that urge to, you know, not stop. They don't want to stop. And social media is designed with no stopping points. Mm -hmm. So if you think about scrolling through Instagram or Facebook, you know, if you read a book, you you can get to an end of a chapter or an end of a section. It's like, Mm -hmm. well, there's a stopping point for me. We don't have that in social media. You just keep scrolling and keep scrolling. And before you know it, how much time has passed. Exactly. So we, we as parents need to play frontal lobe here and thinking mm-hmm. brain and say, we're going to put a stopping point for you. Mm. That so, is such so that good can be advice. really helpful. And the two things that mitigate screen use, um, the research shows are face-to-face contact so the more face-to-face contact our kids are getting with their peers and with family, so dinner time, mm-hmm. you know, uh, extracurricular activities, that mitigates a lot of the screen time. So that's really positive. Again, that's one of the things when we're worrying about those kids who aren't mm-hmm. interacting and they're really on their phones and they're, you know, judging themselves. So that's, sure. you know, those kids would benefit from more face-to-face interaction. And the other piece is um, nature. Oh, yeah. Being outside, particularly mm-hmm. if you can do that without input from an outside source. So no headphones, but just being outside. Right. Um, it's really, it's what the brain evolved mm-hmm. to experience. And when we shut that out completely, if you think about when we're outside, you, know, you, you might go to a park or a shopping center or something and people are walking, looking down at their phones. They've got their headphones in. They're sitting under a tree, but they're looking at their phones with their headphones on. And it's like... That's not nature. Exactly. And the brain's not recognizing it as such. Right. I think physical activity mm-hmm. absolutely is, is a biggie. And that's kind of been shrinking out of the schools, right? Oh, absolutely. That's recess. And or the kids who are misbehaving, that's the punishment. That, well, you don't get to go outside and expend this energy. And that's what our kids need more than anything, particularly in those uh, elementary years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even in high school, I remember my kids, they took APE class for like a semester. Mm-hmm. You know, it was not a required thing, which I think it should be. Yeah. Because that, I mean, that's just, for me, working out is the most productive way to deal with stress. Right. Moving, yes. Right. You know, you, ha- you have to learn to develop these tools. And that, for me, that's the purpose of school. It's developing those tools that you're going to use for the rest of your life. That would be nice, yes. But I just don't think that's where we are today, unfortunately. They are not going to listen to me. Well, I'm working on it. (laughs) That's why we're having this conversation, because I think the more we have this conversation, the more likely we'll see change. Yeah, most definitely. So what is the biggest, most common form of advice you give to parents? The thing I believe in the most is living out loud, which is my way of saying, do what you want them to do model it, 
yourself. Oh, yeah. So our kids have been watching us from the second Mm -hmm. they were born and could open their eyes. And they haven't stopped looking. And even if they don't act like it, and even if you suspect they don't, you know, they don't value what you value or that they're not hearing your advice, they are. But more than anything, more than hearing you, particularly when they're teenagers, they're watching Mm-hmm. And they're learning from us. And that's why we turn into our parents because we were watching them. And even though we say we never will, we ultimately do because that's what we yeah. that's what we saw and that's what we know and that's what we understand and feel. Mm-hmm. So for me, the best thing because I you know, I want to solve problems and my teenagers don't want me to solve their problems. Right. So all I could do was try to model the things that I I wanted them to be comfortable with mm-hmm. in myself. So, I, you know, I'm a former fixed mindset person. I've been there, done that. And mm-hmm. it's a uncomfortable place to be because you, you, you're kind of stagnant. You know, so if you're an adult with a fixed mindset, you kind of stop challenging yourself. And so I made the conscious decision when I took the job teaching at Georgia State, when I decided to open my business and do the coaching when I decided to write a book for heaven's sakes that was never on my radar those were all things where I had to be extremely vulnerable sure and say I don't really know what I'm doing here but I am going to do my best and see how this goes and then Mm -hmm. I just did it out loud in front of my family the good the bad the ugly and they saw that it was all okay and they saw that I could handle disappointment or setbacks and that has been really good for me Number one, which is actually good if we do good things for ourselves as parents, but they've been watching. Mm-hmm. They've been watching. So then that's what we have control over. And I really want parents to feel like they have control. Yes. But you don't have, at some point, you really don't have control anymore. Correct. Right. And you've got to learn to let it go with grace. With grace. Um, it takes a lot of deep breathing. Occasionally you go to your closet and cry. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just parenting. Right. Uh, our kids, the, the greatest gift we can give them um, is we take control ourselves and do the things we have control over. They really feel very powerless right now, so many of our kids, and they don't feel like they have control because mm-hmm. they have all these demands. Right. And giving them more responsibilities in the way that's developmentally appropriate, giving them the permission to try and fail and make mistakes, mm-hmm. and it's not the end of the world gives them more control right and when they get more control they become more motivated right which is what and again that internal motivation but if they feel like it doesn't matter what I do I'm just gonna not you know Mm -hmm. get this bad grade or it doesn't matter my parents aren't going to be happy anyway how do you try right you know and and again that starts feeding into the anxiety and even depression sometimes right and I believe that home should be a safe zone Mm -hmm a place of rest and you can't have harmony all the all the time but it, it needs to be a safe zone for the kids and if if you're over scheduled and you're running and you're picking up food all the time through the drive through window it's like time out reassess and simplify mm-hmm. i mean i think you know parents are good intention and trying to load the schedule with meaningful activities but kids need to be home and chilling and resting Mm -hmm. and just hanging out and the safer our space is at home the more likely ironically you'll get those 
breakdowns and crying fits and lashing out because that is the safe space. Right. So parents sometimes think, well, you know, they, they're just losing it. Nobody would, nobody would know that my kid would do that. They won't believe me that, you know, it's mm-hmm. like, well, that actually says that they feel safe yes. doing that and they need to do that. Right. So, you know, it's, yeah, harmony is not something we should expect in households with teenagers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's a and process. I think for parents, you know, this too shall pass. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you blink and your kids are, are grown and on their way. And we give them roots and wings and a whole lot of love and good discipline. And, you know, it's, it's, I know it's hard, but I think you just, it's back to basics a lot. I mean, I love the living out loud and the fact that you're modeling so much of, <laughs> of the behavior that you don't even realize. And not just with your words, but your actions and your relationships and all of that. I think that's really good advice. Yeah, they don't really listen to our words a whole lot. No, it's more our actions because we say a lot. Yeah, we do. The problem is, as parents, and I, I've done this, and you know, I just I see it a lot. We talk the talk, mm-hmm. but we struggle to walk the walk. Yeah, and and it's helpful to um, my big thing in walking the walk is um, I know I shouldn't solve problems I'm not asked to solve but it's my nature so sometimes my response when my child is losing it and has this big thing this big drama and my solution is just well did you try this or maybe you should you know that's just my go-to and you get that look (laughs) yeah having a mom who's a PhD that's don't want you to solve my problem so I have an arrangement with my daughter that when I do that that she Mm -hmm. immediately tells me I'm doing it because I really don't notice that's good and I stop because all she wants me to do is listen. listen don't need to be the problem solver and my head is driving me crazy but I can stop myself and just listen and let her have her moment ah that's such good advice it's hard (laughs) (laughs) it is hard okay well awesome well I have you here I've got to ask about jeweling oh yeah the vaping the whole vaping thing it's like are you seeing any of that? I mean, I just keep hearing so much about it. I keep, I mean, that's sort of where I am. So it's, does, it hasn't come up as an issue with most of my clients that I can think of um, as something that I'm dealing with. Mm-hmm. I think parents are really struggling with either not knowing or being aware, thinking that their child's not doing it when perhaps they are. Yeah. Um, and maybe not recognizing how incredibly serious this, the potential here is for long-term right. serious Nicotine damage. Nicotine addiction, yeah. and it's it's gateway. Smoking, marijuana, alcohol, all gateway, gateway and, drugs. And the damage to the lungs now, it looks like it's not just from the vitamin E oil, but... Um, at the high temperatures, which particularly the THC, um, which is in the marijuana mm-hmm. products, uh, they need to put it at the highest temperature to get the steam mm-hmm. and to get the, I don't know. But right. anyway, they have to turn it up really high. But the higher temperatures, are it's actually breaking down some of the metals in the device, which are getting, um, oh the particles are in the lungs and permanently scarring lungs. So there's just more to it than you know, cigarettes were bad enough. Right. This is like cigarettes plus all this other horrible mm-hmm. um, stuff that they don't even know necessarily is, yeah. is happening. And there's so much potential for long-term or deadly outcome, which is horrifying. Yeah, that and, is. And the numbers, is. I think, are pretty staggering. Yeah. So one last thing, and then we'll kind of 
move on to something a little more positive to, to close the episode. So you mentioned the suicide rate, mm-hmm. that it is uh, at an all-time high for young people. It is. What, what do parents need to be watching for, be on the lookout for that? I mean, that is just, that is really, really scary. It is. Um, and depression looks different in our teens than it does in adults. So I think that's one of the things that surprises parents um, if they find their child's in crisis. It's like, well, they don't look depressed. They don't mm-hmm. act depressed. You know, mm-hmm. Depressed people don't get out of bed. Um, and that's very common in adulthood. Sure. Um, in childhood, sometimes they they will fake it. Um, they're very good about going about their business. Um, and they're not necessarily just hold up in bed and they, they, they kind of do what they need to do. So sometimes parents can be really surprised and blindsided by the extent of suffering that their child's going through. Um, so that's one piece of it, but I'd say the things to watch for is really a change in friendships and relationships mm-hmm. so if they and, and activities so if they stop doing the things that they always love to do stop talking to the people that are their people right. switch groups of friends um that you know it's like well why are you hanging out with these people now all of a sudden so any kinds of those kinds of really you know large behavioral changes can be red flags that something more serious is going on mm-hmm. And just trying really hard to have open communication with our kids, which means as parents, we have to be vulnerable. We might have to say things like, you're scaring me. Mm -hmm. I'm so worried about you. And I, I need, I need to have a conversation with you about what's going on. I'm not going to judge you. Um, I, I want to help in the way that you need me to help. And, you know, again, we're problem solvers Mm -hmm. and fixers. And sometimes that's... That is just so scary as a parent. Mm -hmm. And that takes an unbelievable amount of bravery to have those conversations. It does. Because when we... we, And there's this thing in the back of our heads that says, well, we can't mention suicide because I don't want to put the idea in or make them think that's an option. And, you know, I've been in the mental health field mm-hmm. in some way or another for 25 years and I still have that nagging feeling and I don't it's uncomfortable it is. to say are you thinking of killing yourself oh have you gosh. ever had thoughts of killing yourself but as a it's what we have to say yeah. um, because people will answer you honestly mm-hmm. and sometimes you'll get a kid say yeah I've thought about it but and they'll qualify because having suicidal ideation in adolescence is not abnormal mm-hmm. it's the thoughts and the thinking that goes beyond the ideation to, yeah, I've thought about, you know, doing X, Y, and Z to make it happen. Mm -hmm. Those are, you know, that's a conversation that would warrant further follow-up. Right. For sure. So the follow-up would be to get with a licensed counselor. Absolutely. To get some, get professional help. Get professional help. Mm -hmm. Such great wisdom. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, it's my pleasure. Okay, totally switching gears. So the word relevate means to uplift or inspire. In closing, what words of advice do you have for my listeners as it relates to challenges of parenting and teens and being a parent? Well, I think the most uplifting thing as a parent to think about is if you're listening to this podcast or if you've read my book or you've read any other book because you're worried about your kid or you want to be a good parent, Mm -hmm. you're a rock star parent. You're not perfect because there's no such thing. Right. And the fact that you care 
and you're trying your best day in and day out, year after year, that's what you need to be doing. And that's what our kids see. You know, they're going to forgive our failings. They want to be loved. They want to be seen. That's what our job is as parents, which is really not that hard when you think about loving your kids. Sometimes we just do it a little overzealously and there's some unintended consequences to that. So, you know, it's never too late to make a tweak here or there. I always say to parents when I do uh, speaking engagements is, you know, the last thing I want is anybody in here to have a moment of remorse or guilt for something you've said, done, or the way you've, you know, parented because that's in the past and, you know, we're not perfect and we're all going to make mistakes. And the important thing is, is that we just keep trying to get better. Exactly. And that's what our kids will see. Exactly. Dr. Janine Genot, how can people connect with you? Oh, so I have a website, janinegenot.com, and that has information about the book and um, my coaching as well, as well as on that website. Okay. And I will link that to the podcast okay. notes. So congratulations on writing a book Thank and getting you. your PhD and for just sharing these messages and really practical tips for parents on how to be better. And we're all a work in progress, but being a parent is our most important job. Agreed. So thanks for helping us be better parents. Thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed it. It was absolutely great having you here. Parents, I hope you were taking notes. That episode was chock full of really wise advice for you and your student. Parenting is hard hard, truly a seemingly thankless job at times. I'm so thankful for people like Dr. Janine Janot, who are here to help us along the parenting journey. You are a parent. I would strongly encourage you to pick up a copy of her book. The title again is The Disintegrating Student, Super Smart and Falling Apart. You can find it on Amazon. See the episode notes below for a link to the book and Janine's website do you know that needs to listen to this episode? I encourage you to share with everyone who is a parent of a young or an adolescent age child. And by all means, if your child is struggling, please don't hesitate to get them help from a professional should you suspect something is wrong. Thank you, friends, for being a listener of the Relevate podcast. I encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, listen, and freely share these episodes with those you know and love never know the struggles people are facing. As your host, it is my hope and prayer that the conversations we have will encourage and inform and maybe even be a catalyst to spark change in someone's life. For more information, check out my website, rena-olson.com. I'm Rena Olson, and this is Relevate.